Good evening, church. If you have your Bibles, and I'm sure you do, could you turn to 1 Kings chapter 17? As you do so, let me just say thank you for the opportunity to be here. Uh, This is an amazing sight for me to behold. Uh, Where I'm from in Connecticut, in the entire state, there might be four independent Baptist churches that are open tonight. Um, They started closing doors because it was just more convenient for people. And to see a church filled uh, on a Sunday evening, just like they all used to be, that is a wonderful thing to see. I've enjoyed the spirit uh, of the day and the singing. Uh, I was over at the Spanish church today, and that was that was an interesting time. Uh, I don't speak any Spanish other than taco, and uh, that and uh, yet yeah, we just uh, we uh, brother Velasquez and I we we found our rhythm pretty well. And right in the middle of the sermon, everybody's phone went off with the the, the flood watch alert. Did that happen here? Yes, and we found out who didn't turn their phones off for church. Exactly, and there it was everybody. And then the lights started going out when the storm hit, and uh, I thought I was in like the haunted mansion or something like that with all that going on. But what a sweet group of people there, and there was a lady saved there this morning. Uh, Brother Schultz, thank you for your kindness in allowing me to come and be a part of the ministry here today. Uh, the beautiful hotel room, I'm thinking about selling my home in uh, Connecticut and just moving and living at the Holiday Inn Express. And uh, But boy, just uh, uh, all kinds of goodies and, and uh, the kindness that you've shown to me. And I enjoyed lunch with the, uh, the pastor's family today. And I was happy that it was Mexican and not sushi. God invented fire because fish is meant to be cooked. That, that's, I'm sure that's in the Bible somewhere. In fact, I know it's in the Bible because after the resurrection, when the disciples went fishing all night, they came and Jesus was cooking fish on the fire. It's Bible. It's Bible. Uh, but uh, I have found a kindred spirit in your pastor. And uh, it's just been a, it's been refreshing for me to be here. Uh, I'm going to admit that I can't wait to get on the road tomorrow and get out of here. I had a brand new grandson who arrived since I left last week. And I need to go home and meet him. And uh, so uh, we're looking forward to that. God sure has been uh, good to us. First Kings chapter 17, I want to read seven verses with you and then we'll get into the message and I'll share as best I can my testimony. It's hard to take a 17-year segment of life and cram it into a three-hour sermon, but I will do my best. I just, yeah, I, uh-huh, uh, I'm kidding. It'll only be two. Uh, it is. It's all good. But uh, we'll we'll see uh, if the Lord will just help us to uh, go where we need to tonight. The Bible says, "And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word." Ahab was the most wicked king in all the nation of Israel's history. The Bible says, before him or after him, there was none like him. Along with his wicked wife Jezebel, they introduced the worship of Baal. They persecuted the true believers. Prophets were being slaughtered by that wicked man and his wife. Others were hiding out in caves trying to just get through this time of persecution. God wasn't going to let that go for long, and so God had a plan in in motion to judge the nation of Israel and judge Ahab and his his wicked wife. 
And so God sent a preacher into Ahab's court. Ahab's capital city was Samaria. And out of nowhere from, we think, maybe the wilderness, no one is sure, this rough-and-tumble preacher came walking into town. He wore a leather garment or a, a camel's hair garment and a leather uh, belt. Uh, he was a hairy man. I, I personally think that he was a mountain of a man. And this man, Elijah, came out of nowhere and walked into the palace and pointed his finger at Ahab. And he said, as the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there won't be any rain, there won't be any dew until I say so. And at that instant, Elijah became the most famous preacher in the land of Israel. It would be almost like Pastor Shook just walking into the White House and all the gates open before him and the security guards all step aside and the Secret Service move out of his way and he would walk into the Oval Office with all the cameras running and point his finger in President Biden's face and saying, Thus saith the Lord. I think you ought to do it, personally. Do you understand if that were to happen, you'd be all over uh, the, the nightly news and, and everybody would be talking about Pastor John Shook and, and, and so forth. Well, the same thing would have been true in Elijah's day. And he went from obscurity to a measure of fame that he had never had before. He delivered the message that God had for him. And then God did something unusual. Verse 2, and the word of the Lord came unto him, now unto Elijah. Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So all of a sudden, he's got the spotlight of a nation on him. He is there, the one bright light in the darkest time of that nation's history up to that point. And, and it seems for those other believers that maybe God's uh, bringing a revival and, and boy, something's happening now. And just like that, God says, now I want you to leave out of the spotlight. I want you to go out into obscurity once again. And he said, I want you to go to a brook, a place called Cherith, and I want you to hide yourself there. He said, you're going to drink of the brook. And he said, I've commanded the ravens to feed you. So verse number five So he went and did according unto the word of the Lord. You know, we like obeying God when it's an easy thing, don't we? We we like obeying God when there's something in it for us. But this was a challenge. This was about to be a difficulty. But Elijah didn't squabble with God and he didn't argue with God. The Bible says he went and did according unto the word of the Lord. For he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And let's pray for just a moment. Father, thank you for the privilege of being in the house of the Lord tonight. Thank you for this group that you have assembled together. There'll never be another group exactly like this. There'll never be another service exactly like this. Would you crown this service with your presence? Would you open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law? Would you give us hungry, holy hearts that would listen to the word of the Lord? Would you strengthen and encourage and help us? And Lord, we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory for everything that happens. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. A place called Cherith. A place called Cherith. When I, when I first read this passage, and this sermon was somewhat born some 17 or so years ago, I had known the story, I'd heard it preached many, many times, but it dawned on me that I had no idea where Cherith was. I've been to Israel, I know where Jerusalem is, and the Sea of Galilee, and the Jordan River, and so on and so forth. But this place called Cherith, I, 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 it dawned on me, I just don't know where it is. So uh, I got my maps open in the back of the Bible that I was using, and uh, I started looking through all the Old Testament maps in there to find this brook called Cherith, and it wasn't there. I pulled another Bible down from my shelf, they're all King James, and, and looked at the maps in, in there, and the editors didn't put Cherith on that one either. I went through seven Bibles, seven sets of math, or seven sets of maps, couldn't find this brook called Cherith. Finally, on the eighth one, they had it. And there was this little squiggly blue line in the word Cherith, but it had a question mark after it. You know what that means, don't you? They're just taking a guess, a stab in the dark. They have no idea if Cherith was there or not. Cherith wasn't a mainstream place. It wasn't a famous place. It wasn't a place that we read about anywhere else in the entire Bible. We read about the mountains of Moriah. We read about Jerusalem. We read about Caesarea. Uh, we read about Antioch. But Cherith only occurs in this one place... And yet nobody even today knows where Cherith was. But that's the place that God sent his prophet Elijah. Can I have your attention for a few moments? And I want to help you see three important characteristics of this place called Cherith. Number one, I want you to understand that Cherith was the right place for Elijah to be. It was the right place. God sent him there. It wasn't the right place because there was the opportunity for a big ministry. It wasn't the right place because like Samaria, there would be a whole city that would turn to Christ. It wasn't the right place because it was so well known and there were so many comforts and so many uh, things available to do because none of those things existed. Cherith was the right place for one reason and one reason alone. God said, go there. And that was it. Cherith was the right place because that is where God placed him. I believe there's a place geographically, physically, where God wants us to be. I believe church is where God wants us to be on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night and every other time something's going on down at the church house. Uh, because the Bible says to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but so much the more as you see the day approaching. I believe in every one of our lives there's a place that God wants us to serve. There's a place where God wants us to raise our families and so forth. But I want you to understand tonight in the context of the message, Cherith is not always about geography. I am pastoring in Wallingford, Connecticut, and for me, that is the right place. Uh, a little over 25 years ago, God made it plain and clear that that was where I was to serve in. That is the right place. But sometimes Cher- Cherith isn't found on a map. Sometimes Cherith is about 
circumstances, situations that God brings into our lives. And we need to understand that when God moves and God does those things, what God does is always right. As for the Lord, his way is perfect. Cherith was the right place. We won't tarry much longer on that point, but we will keep coming back to it because we'll need that reminder. Cherith was the right place because God put him there. The second thing about Cherith is Cherith was a rough place for Elijah. I remember as a young man, and I got saved in 1972 as a bus kid. I got called to preach in 1974, went off to Bible college, and, and, and began to wonder about the future God had for me and, and, and how God would lead in my life. And I somehow thought that the ministry was a dream come true. I, I saw a meme one day that said, the pastoring a church is a walk in the park. Jurassic Park, but it's still a park. Uh, I, I, but I really, I was naive enough to think that, boy, if I'm in the center of God's will, everything is going to go smoothly. Everything is going to be, be, be wonderful and so forth. And I had a lot to learn on that and, and, and realize that that's not always the case. The early church found out early, uh, very early on that there was going to be persecution and opposition to the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Elijah is right in the center of God's will. He went and did according as God told him to do. He went to this place called Cherith, but it was anything but easy. It was anything but pleasant. Uh, Cherith was a rough place. Cherith was a place of isolation. A place of isolation. As far as we can tell from Scripture, there was not another soul anywhere around Cherith. Cherith was so uh, far out of, off the beaten path that we learn later in this book of the Bible that King Ahab had sent search parties out trying to find Elijah to make him end this drought. Remember, he said there'll be no dew or rain, but according to my word. Everything was dying. The grass was gone. The crops were gone. People are starving. The, the farm animals are dying. The, the economy is falling apart. Ahab had search parties looking for Elijah. He's hiding at this place called Cherith. They couldn't find him. This was a place of isolation. Most of us don't do well on our own. You understand that Peter was all by himself by the enemy's fire the night that he denied Christ three times. I personally think that if uh, if uh, James and John and Thomas and some of the other guys might have been there, Peter might have been a little stronger in his faith, but he was all by himself, surrounded by the unsaved, and he crumbled and he fell. David was all by himself on that rooftop that night when he destroyed his family and walked into sin. That place of isolation can be very, very difficult on us. Sometimes as we go through life, God brings circumstances into our lives and there's nobody else that can take away the pain. There's nobody else that can fix it. Sometimes there's nobody else that can even understand it. And we want to struggle against God and we want to get angry with God. But we always have to keep going back to that first point. Cherith was the right place. Because that's where God told him to be. 
It was a rough place because it was a place of isolation. It was also a place of desolation. The only thing there was water. I mean, that's it. Now, water's important. We'll die without it. But there was no food. God had to have food airlifted in twice a day to feed his prophet. There was no grocery store. There was no Dunkin' Donuts. There are no restaurants. There were no farms to go buy a farmer's stand and get some fruits or vegetables. There was nothing to eat. And there, there, was, there was nothing to do there except say, i got to trust God or I die. It was a place of desolation. Sometimes in the course of our lives, God is going to send us through a place called Cherith. The book of Job teaches us that man's days are few and full of trouble as the sparks fly upward. James taught us in James chapter 1, My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations, diverse trials and difficulties. Um, he said to count it all joy. He talked to us about that as if it is just going to be the normal course of life. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Sooner or later, every one of us is going to spend some time at Cherith. In May of 2017, my wife and I received an invitation to preach at a little church on the islands of the Outer Banks of North Carolina. We had vacationed there with my wife's family many, many times over the years. This time was a bit different. We were just going down for a Saturday and a Sunday uh, to preach and to teach. My wife was going to speak at a mother-daughter banquet on Saturday. I was going to preach all day Sunday, much like this weekend. And then Monday, we were going to go back to Norfolk, catch a plane, and fly home again. When we left Connecticut, I was, I was not feeling well, had not been feeling well for several days. My biggest complaint was that I was bone tired. I could sleep 10 hours and wake up and I was exhausted. It was just kind of the way it was. I'd been busy burning the candle at both ends and I thought that's all that it was. I remember getting on the plane and I, I slept all the way from Hartford to, to Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C. We had a three-hour layover, and while my wife went in search of breakfast, I laid down on a bench and slept until our flight was ready. We flew from there to Norfolk, and I slept on the flight. We got to Norfolk, picked up a rental car. This is how tired I was. I let my wife drive from Norfolk down to the Outer Banks. Talk about faith. And I just laid down in the back seat and let her drive. We got to the house we were staying at. I got everything inside somehow and just laid down on the couch and slept. There was just, there was something off. My wife knew something was off and we just kept saying, I'm just tired. I had no other symptoms other than that. Saturday night came along and my wife left. I was laying on the couch. I'd been there most of the day. She went to do the ladies' meeting, and she came back about 9.30 into the house, and I hadn't budged. I was still on the couch. But when she walked over and touched me, I was burning up with a fever. There was a little a hospital on the island, and she bundled me up, and we, we somehow got up to the hospital, and within 20 minutes, they diagnosed that I had a severe case of pneumococcal pneumonia. My right lung, they told me, was filled with fluid, the outside of the lung was covered uh, in, in infection, and across on the other side where my spleen was, the spleen was covered in the same infection, and, and right in between them was my heart. 
And they said, we don't have a pulmonary unit here, so I got my first ambulance ride from the Outer Banks all the way up into Chesapeake, Virginia. I got checked in on, on Saturday, I'm sorry, Sunday morning about 2 a.m. Sunday afternoon at 5 a.m., they put me in intensive care. And Monday afternoon, they told my wife to call the family because I wasn't going home. I didn't know that things were that bad. I sort of guessed. They didn't tell me the severity of things. I, I, I was on 100% oxygen, tons of antibiotics, and, and lots of other things. But when my brother and sisters and my children all showed up from all over the country, I sort of put two and two together. And we found ourselves overnight in a place called Cherith. By the way, in case you're wondering, I did not die. Some of you were looking worried. And that kind of worries me. The Lord was gracious. We found out that somehow word got all over the country and people were praying for us. And uh, the Lord turned things around and two weeks later the hospital felt safe to discharge me and we got yet another rental car and began the long drive back home. The airlines would let me on a plane and we got back home to Connecticut almost three weeks after we had left for a weekend away. When we got back, every system in my body had been shattered because of the pneumonia. My eyesight was ruined. I, I, I've always worn glasses since I was nine years of age, uh, but my prescription didn't, didn't work anymore. I, I couldn't focus to read. I couldn't watch television. About all I could do is my wife got the Bible on CD and gave me some headphones, and I just laid on the couch all day long just listening to the Bible. It's all I could do. If I'd walk out to the mailbox, which might be from here to the back door of the auditorium, I would have to lean on the mailbox for about five minutes and wait for my wife to realize I hadn't come back in, and she'd have to come out and help me into the house because I was just, I was just so weak and shattered. Even then, the Lord was kind. The Lord was kind. I didn't get to go to church for a while because of the the health issues, but finally I was back. And all of a sudden, I was strong enough to try to preach a sermon. And so on a Sunday morning, I did so, and it was good to be back in the pulpit. And I remember that Sunday morning clearly because the sermon was over, and I walked over to this side of the platform, and I'm not going to walk down the stairs tonight because it'll take me too long to get back up, but as I walked down the stairs, I felt a little pinprick in the bottom of my left foot. It hadn't been there before, and, and, and I hadn't noticed it all through the sermon, but it was there. So I went and sat down in the front row and slipped my shoe off, and nothing in the shoe, checked the sock, nothing in the sock, put everything back on, and I stood up and took a step, and that little pinprick was there. I, I couldn't tell you what was causing it. There was nothing visible to see but something was was like a needle uh, piercing the bottom of my foot. That pain got worse over the course of the next few days. The next Sunday I came to church, but I had to use crutches. The Sunday after that I woke up early and I was going to get up and start getting ready for church. And all I did was stand up at the side of my bed and I had a wave of pain that washed over me that is beyond description. I have never known a pain like that before 
or sins. It just washed over me. It literally took my breath away and I landed hard on the bed and, and immediately started sobbing like a child because the pain was so bad. It woke my, my wife up and, and she's already in, in, full-time panic mode with my health. And she said, what's going on? I said, I have no idea. I have no idea. Um, and and I, so I just laid there. She gave me uh, some pain medicine that we had, and I let that kick in, and I uh, tried to get up again, and there was the same pain. I, I remember getting to the to the bathroom to, to get ready for church and so forth, just crying the whole time. And uh, uh, it, it was it was just one of those awful things. I did get to church, but by the time I got in my office, I uh, I was of no value to anyone. And my associate pastor, uh, Trina, went and, and grabbed him. I said, Brian, I'm, I'm going to have to go home. I don't know why. I was crying. And he said, preacher, just go. That afternoon, I found out that as long as I kept my foot elevated, it was tolerable. So that Sunday night, we moved the pulpit off the platform and put a lectern there. We had chairs along the platform, and our chairs just happened to have a footrest feature like your recliner. We didn't buy them for that. We bought them because they matched our auditorium, but they had that. And so I got in early so that I wouldn't be crying in front of the church people. I sat right over there. I put the footrest out, and I preached my first sermon sitting down in that position, and I would do that for the next 10 months. The doctor said the pneumonia that I had had settled. It got into my bloodstream and settled in the bottom of my foot. I didn't even know that was possible. So they gave me antibiotics. They gave me steroids. Uh, they gave me Percocet by the bottle full. But uh, it didn't fix anything. My foot began to swell. To, to the, uh, in the end, my foot was about the size of a football. Um, could no longer wear shoes, could no longer wear slippers on that foot. And the pain just kept getting worse and worse. It seemed like Cherith was just never going to end for us. Finally, in December of that year, I was hospitalized with a migraine headache that lasted for some seven days or so, during which time another doctor just happened to walk in the room and he looked at my foot and he said, I believe... I know what's wrong. And they ran a test. And it turns out that I didn't have pneumonia in my foot. I had cancer. I had cancer, a type of cancer called osteosarcoma. Um, It had gone misdiagnosed for so long that it was now at a critical point. So in January of 2007, I had a surgery to remove a large tumor. That surgery failed. In February, they had another surgery that removed most of the bottom of my left foot, and that surgery failed. In between there, there was a lot of tears. There was a lot of trials. There were, there were a lot of uh, heartaches that, that we went through, um, and, and it's, I'm sort of summarizing some things as we go along. One day, they did, they did a test. They did another biopsy, and Dr. Bloom, my doctor, called me, and I was sitting on the couch at home one afternoon, and he said, Tom, we have run the test. He said, we cannot find any clear margins. As far as we can tell, your entire foot is filled with cancer. If this cancer hits the bone or one of the blood vessels, there'll be no stopping it, and your life is over. He said, it is time for us to consider amputation. He told me that. He had me hand the phone to my wife. He said, I need to tell her because you won't tell her everything. 
And I watched my wife's countenance fall as she heard the words. We hung up and sat on the couch and we held each other and we cried and we prayed. I think it was a sunny day when that day started, but all I can remember of that afternoon is everything was very, very dark. Cherith can be like that. We had to tell our children about the amputation. We had to tell our church that had already been through so much with us in in this ordeal. In May of 2007, we went into the hospital and the doctors amputated my left foot just above the ankle. And I woke up and I was in a world that nobody prepares you for. There's no playbook. There's nothing that can get you ready for this. But that was my new world. I got my first prosthesis and learned how to walk, and that was a that was an, an, uh, that was a struggle, and there was so much to learn, and I had no idea uh, that that in itself was going to be a painful thing. Uh, I became very good at falling. I have like a master's degree in falling down. I could fall anywhere at a moment's notice, and and uh, but eventually I got things figured out, and within about a year. I was walking without a limp. If you had seen me back then walking, even though I was an amputee with a prosthesis, you would have been surprised to learn that that I was disabled. Uh, One of the greatest days of my life is I parked in the handicapped spot. By the way, I get all the good parking spots now. It is so worth it. It really is. But I parked in the handicapped spot and I was, I was rushing in to, to go into Walmart and some lady, I think her name was Karen, started chewing me out. I mean, she started, excuse me, sir, that's a handicapped spot. I had the tag hanging in my car. You know, go mind your own business, go stream at somebody at Burger King, leave me alone. She said, that's for handicapped people and she's going uh, uh, off on me. And so I just hiked up my pant leg and said, I have a fake leg. Does that qualify? And Karen shut up. <laughs> it was awesome. She started to apologize. I said, ma'am, you just made my day. Uh, that is the greatest compliment you could have given to me that I was walking so well. And, and we felt like our time in Cherith was over. You know, Elijah did not stay there permanently. So we figured we had come to the end of our stay and now it's time to move on. And we sort of forgot um, about things and just went forward and, and, and started enjoying life. And we, we, we forgot the sickness and we forgot the pain medicines and, and all of those things. And life was good until 2010, three years later. I woke up one Saturday night and I felt like I'd been tasered in the bottom of my left leg. It went on all night long, hour after hour after hour. I I had no idea what was going on. It turns out I had developed a massive tumors where they had done the amputation. They're called neuromas. And uh, the only way to deal with them is you have to have yet another surgery. So one year... I'm sorry, three years after the first amputation, I went in. They were just supposed to take the tumors out, and that was it. But there were so many of them that they had to actually amputate another two or three inches of my leg. I had to start all over again. I had to get a new prosthesis because the other one would no longer fit. I had to learn how to walk again. And we were back in Cherith. We were back in Cherith. And I'm just going to confess to you, I was not real happy to be there. 
Not real happy at all. My wife actually was stronger than I was at that point. I fussed with the Lord for a little bit. But God was gracious and kind. I'm thankful that even though I fussed with the Lord, He was still kind to me. I learned how to walk again, and with this time, believe it or not, in six weeks I was walking without a limp after I got the new prosthesis. I taught myself how to run on that prosthesis, not with a running blade, just with the the regular foot that comes with him, and I learned to run competitively. I started competing in 5K obstacle runs, which is sort of like a a toned-down Spartan race, if you're familiar with that type of uh, athletic endeavor. And and, uh, I rock wall climbing and and, and bicycling and all those things. And and, uh, it it was like, okay, our our time in Cherith was a short-lived one. And once again, we just moved on. And the years began to go by, and it was all just a painful memory somewhere way in the back. And we thanked the Lord for what we learned and what we saw and how God took care of us during those times. But we were so glad, we were so glad that that was over. So glad. Thursday, January the 12th, 2017. My wife had a doctor's appointment that day because she'd not been feeling well. We thought she had the flu. At 4.30 in the morning, I woke up and I checked my watch to see the time. And right after I did so, my wife lying beside me, I didn't even know she was awake. She called my name. She said, Tom. I said, honey, what do you need? She said, I know you're awake. I saw you check your watch. I said, what do you need? She didn't answer me. A few seconds went by and she called my name again, Tom. I said, honey, what do you need? She said, I know you're awake. I saw you check your watch. We had that conversation three or four times, word for word. I'm laying there thinking, I don't understand this. This isn't making a lot of sense. And finally, she called my name again. I said, honey, what do you need? She said, please don't go to the office today. Stay here with me. That was unusual for her. My wife was a very strong lady, very independent lady, loved the Lord, a woman of tremendous faith. She'd never asked me to do that before. And they said, okay, if that's what you need, that's what I'll do. And I'm laying there just trying to figure out what's going on. And I know the doctor was coming up at three in the afternoon, but I thought something's off. I need to get her to the hospital. So I got up and started getting dressed, and she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to go over to the church and make sure the boiler is going to fire so we have heat for the school today. And when I come back, we're going to go to the emergency room and just get things checked out. She didn't argue with me. I came back a half an hour later, and she was dressed and ready to go. We went to the emergency room, and I tried to tell the doctor what was going on, and he said, I don't want to hear it from you. I want to hear it from her. She couldn't tell him what was wrong. She couldn't explain it. She couldn't get the words to come in any order. So finally said, okay, I guess it's going to be you. And I told him what was going on, what had happened that morning. Sadly, he minimized it and thought, well, she's probably just a woman dealing with some stress. And and uh, he gave her some Ativan to calm her down. And that was sort of his approach to it. He said, but let's make sure we're going to run a CAT scan. An hour later, he came in. He said, Mr. and Mrs. Bish, I apologize to you. 
He said, the CAT scan revealed that there is a large mass on the front left temporal lobe of your wife's brain. He said, we're not sure what it is, so we're going to do an MRI. An hour or so later, he came back in. He was crying. The nurse was crying. He said, Mr. and Mrs. Bish, your wife has a tumor. It is called a glioblastoma. It is cancer. He said, there's an ambulance on its way to transport your wife to another hospital. You'll meet a neurosurgeon there, and either today or tomorrow morning, your wife will have emergency brain surgery. And after all those years of quiet, seven years, we were back in Cherith, in my opinion, worse than ever before. We didn't know what glioblastoma was, and so as the doctors left, she sort of fell asleep, and I got my phone out, and I Googled it, and there's nothing good to say about a glioblastoma. The average life expectancy is six months, and that's what we're dealing with. She had her surgery on a Friday morning. They put her in intensive care Friday evening when she got out of recovery, They sent me home Friday night to get a little bit of rest. The doctors did. And I walked in on Saturday morning, and they were afraid she would lose her speech and the use of her right arm and and so forth. And I walked in, and she was just chattering up a storm to the nurse in the room. I mean, just telling stories and laughing. And and I walked in, and he looked at me and goes, Boy, she really likes to talk, doesn't she? I said, Dude, you have no idea. (laughs) Later... She was transferred to a regular room, and Trina and I were sitting there, just the two of us. And she said, Tom, we have to be very careful now. Our children are watching us. And she had Googled glioblastoma. She knew what she had. She said, I don't want my kids to think that God's a bad God. I don't want them to think that it's not safe to trust him. And you and I are the ones that are going to make sure that doesn't happen. We have got to be careful that we let them know that God is always good. And that little phrase became her theme. God is always good. If you were to come to Wallingford, Connecticut, you will find that we have that everywhere. We have it on coffee mugs. We have it on t-shirts. We have it on plaques. God is always good. We went through the surgery. We went through chemo. We went through radiation. For many years, my wife was the caregiver, and I was the one getting cared for. All of a sudden, it's turned around, and I remember one month into it, just the Lord and I talking, and I asked him, I said, God, Will I not ever be tired? I had never been so tired in all my life. By the way, I didn't begrudge it. I wasn't complaining. It was the greatest honor of my life to take care of her. We went to Mexico for specialized treatments in cancer that we can't get in the States. We spent six weeks there total. We went to several different uh, uh, neuro uh, oncologists and so forth, and, and we had a great team of people that worked with us. But 11 months after her diagnosis on December 9th, 2017, on a Saturday morning, I sat beside my wife's bed, and I just listened to her take her last breath, and she was gone. 
Cherith. Cherith. We'd been married 33 and a half years when the Lord took her to heaven. For all those years, it had always been her and I. Our kids had grown and married and out of the home, and it was just the two of us. And during my sickness, we sort of just focused in on each other, and and we just did everything together. And it was just the two of us, and suddenly it was just the one of us. I tried to get back into the swing of everything and put my life together and try to move forward, and God was good and God was kind. He always is. Six months after Trina went to heaven, I ran my next 5K obstacle run. My son encouraged me to do it, something to sort of fill my days, something to occupy my mind a little bit. And so I ran and had a great time, and and everything went well. And two days after that run, I got out of my car after preaching at teen camp. It was 11.30 at night. I stepped out of my car. I took one step, and that familiar pain was back. It wasn't there earlier when I preached in New Hampshire, but I took a two-hour drive home, and it was back. Long story short, the tumors were back, and I spent the rest of that summer in surgery after surgery. They were taking them out, and they were coming back faster than they could remove them. And so in August 2018, the doctors made the decision to amputate the rest of my left leg. And that brings me to now brings me to now. My journey hasn't been at all what I thought it would be. It's not what we dreamed of. My, I'm, I'm 65 years of age. My wife and I had all these plans for what we were going to do uh, and, and, and so forth, and none of those plans are ever going to happen. I didn't dream at this stage in life of being alone. I didn't dream this stage in life of being an amputee and, and all of those things, but This is part of God's plan for my life. I didn't just wake up one day and say, hey, can you cut off my foot? I'd like to try that. Hey, can you make this bad thing happen to me? I'd like to try that. I was just going about my day. I was just trying to go about the business of the Lord. And God allowed some things to come into my life that I would have never signed up for. So I have to believe this, that if God chose this for me, My cherith is the right place. It's the right place. And yes, it is a rough place, but I want you to understand from the word of God, there's a third characteristic of this place called cherith, and this is the best part of the whole sermon. So if you haven't, uh, if you've slept, wake up. This is the good part. Cherith was the right place. It was a rough place, but cherith was a remarkable place. It was a remarkable place. First of all, it was a place of provision. God said, you go there. He said, I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. He said, every morning and every evening, they're going to bring bread and flesh, and they are going to feed you. Have you ever stopped to think about how absolutely incredible that is? We don't call them ravens up in my neck of the woods. We call them crows, those big, black, nasty birds. Crows are scavengers. They're just scavengers. They eat disgusting things. 
I mean, you've seen them. You know, you go down the highway and there's, you know, there's Bugs Bunnies laying along the road. A wily coyote got them. And there are two crows and they're fighting over his intestines, you know, on the road. And they're just picking away at it. And it's just like disgusting. They're scavengers by nature. Ravens are, are selfish creatures. When, when Noah uh, uh, first opened the window of the ark, he sent out a raven. It never came back. You, you say, why? Because it was feasting in all the dead carrion that was floating on, on the waters that were still there. That, that raven didn't care about anybody but the raven. Do you realize in order to feed Elijah, God worked a miracle and changed the nature of ravens. And they're no longer selfish scavengers. They're working for DoorDash. Do you really know? Here's what I think happens. Understand this. Ravens can't make bread. They don't have little raven kitchens with bowls and stuff like that. Ravens don't do that. Ravens don't cook. Um, I, I want you to understand this. Those ravens were now picking up roadkill and bringing it to Elijah. That was against the law of God for his people. The Jews were not allowed to eat of that which died of itself. Here's what I think happened. This is Bishology. I can't give you chapter and verse. In times of famine, when everybody else is starving, the last place there's food is in the palace. I think at the place where they were cooking Ahab's breakfast and his dinner, they would have cooked out of doors. Everything was over a fire. I think that up in the tree, Heckel and Jekyll were sitting up there every morning. And they were watching Ahab's cooks down there making the bread and getting the meat cut and getting it on the grill and getting it seasoned just right. And after a little while, one of them looked at the other and said, um, you get the bread and I'll, I'll get the meat uh, and then we'll switch for dinner. And then on a cue, they just came down and swooped and they each grabbed a piece and they took off flying and they just dropped it off to God's servant. He, that happened every morning. That happened every evening. God is providing miraculously for a servant. It's a rough place. It's a difficult place. But in that place, Elijah is learning maybe for the first time just how wonderful and amazing and good God is. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. I pick up my Bible and I read about miracles. I read about the parting of the Red Sea. I read about manna. I read about Jesus walking on the water. I read about feeding of the 5,000. I read about Lazarus being raised from the dead. And I don't know about you, I wish I could see it. I hope maybe in heaven there's a theater there and God has DVDs and we can just pull one out. Let's watch the Red Sea tonight and we get to see how it really happened. And we read about those miracles, and in our day and age, we say, Oh, I wish I could have been there when those waters were parted, or the walls of Jericho came down. I wish I could have seen the size of Goliath and watched as he fell to the ground. Would would you understand this about miracles? Almost every miracle in the Bible was preceded by a crisis. Someone was in trouble. Someone was sick, someone was blind, someone was lame, someone was demon-possessed, someone was dying or someone had died, someone was trapped with a sea in front of them and a murderous army behind them. 
Their, their fear was tremendous. Their peril was real. There was a crisis there. And then God swoops down and says, now let me show you what I can do. Miracles are God's response to our problems. And there are times when God brings us to the place called Cherith. He is not bringing us there because He's angry with us or mad at us. Even if it's for chastisement purposes, that's because He loves us. But it is in that place that if we will trust Him, and we will not run, and we will not pull a Job's wife and say, curse God and die, but we will simply trust the Lord, we'll get to see what God can do. Cherith is a place of provision. On the day that my wife was diagnosed with glioblastoma, I had $8 in our checking account. We had no savings account. That was gone with all of my health issues uh, and all of the hospital bills that had accrued over a number of years. We're living week to week, paycheck to paycheck. We were paying our bills. There just wasn't anything extra. I had $8. In the first week, my wife said to me, she said, Honey, there's a hospital in Mexico, in Tijuana, the Oasis of Hope Hospital. I believe God wants me to go there and get alternative treatment for this cancer. So we began to look into it, and I contacted them. And they sent me the information, and the first thing they told me was, Now, you understand, American health insurance doesn't work here. You have to pay cash. We don't allow you to have a credit account and you pay it off. You have to pay it all, whether you put it on a credit card or whatever you do. You have to pay cash. They said the first month, and you have to agree to stay for four weeks when you first come, the first month is going to cost $40,000. I had eight. 39992 to go. But my wife was adamant. She said, I know that's where God wants us to go. My wife and I have had a policy from the time that we got married that if we had a need, we never told anybody about it until after God met the need. Now, I know others don't have that, and I don't criticize them. Everybody does what God would have them to do. God just never given us the liberty to say anything. So we didn't tell anybody that we were going to need $40,000 for this trip to Mexico. We told nobody. That was in January when she was diagnosed. We, we got everything scheduled, and we couldn't go till she was done with chemo and radiation. So we were going to spend the entire month of May that year in Mexico. I still remember the day. It was a Friday. We boarded a Delta Airlines flight, and we were escorted to the first-class cabin. Somebody heard we were going to make the trip, and they, they had a lot of frequent flyer miles, and they got a hold of Delta, told them about us, what was going on. Delta gave us first-class round-trip tickets. How many have ever flown first-class? I'm addicted. I am totally addicted to that. We landed in San Diego and and somebody from the hospital in Mexico picked us up by van and took us across the border. And we spent an incredible month there. It was run by Christian people. They had church every Sunday. I got to preach there uh, twice in, in, in the first time that we were there and so forth. On our last Friday there, Jesus, the business manager, came to our room 
And he sat down with me and he had to print out of every treatment that she'd had, every supplement that they'd given her, the whole nine yards, uh, uh, you know, our, our stay, our room and board and all that kind of stuff. It came to $39,537. Say, so what'd you do? I reached in my wallet and I pulled out my debit card, not a credit card. I pulled out my debit card, handed it to Jesus and paid cash. Say, how'd you do that? I robbed a Wells Fargo bank. I Say, how'd you do that? We prayed. And for months, every time I went to the mailbox, there was an envelope there, a card, a letter. Some from people that I knew, some from relatives that knew Trina had cancer, was going through things, said, hey, we just wanted to be a blessing, we'd like to help. Some came from people on the other side of the country, some came from people in other countries, some of it came from people that to this day I have never met them. And they just said, hey, we want to be a blessing. Somewhere it would be five dollars. There was, there was a couple for over five thousand dollars. And we just put everything in a savings account. And when the, the need, uh, time came to pay for the need, the money was there. You say, what's that? That's the Ravens. That's the Ravens. Oh, if I, I if I had the time, and I, I don't want to bore you, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, be be, be uh, unwise as an unwise steward of your time. But I have seen that over and over again during our time at Cherith. That every time there's been a need, and my back's been against the wall, and I start to stress and I start to fret, and there's that still small voice that says, "I'm still God." And I, and I've got you covered. Just look up. I will lift up mine eyes into the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord which made heaven and earth. And beloved, when you're in Cherith and you're going through that trial and you're wondering what's going to happen and how we're going to make it through, would you understand God will take care of you? He is a good God. He doesn't take care of us because we are good. He takes care of us because He is good. I was telling, I think I was telling the preacher today, I know I, Brother Escobar and I were talking. Last November, I had to get a new prosthesis. They wear out after four years or so. And so I got the prosthesis I currently wear. It starts up here near my hip and goes all the way down to the foot. I have a microprocessor knee. I have an app on my phone that controls my knee. I can, I can have settings for running, for hiking, for cycling. Uh, I believe it or not, you can, you can't tell by looking. I'm a competitive power lifter. Um, and I have, I have settings on there for when I'm power lifting. And all of those bells and whistles are nice, but the price tag on my leg is $75,000. I could buy two and a half of my cars for what my leg costs. My leg probably costs more than some of your houses do. My insurance company, Anthem Blue Cross, pays 50% of a prosthesis. When I went in last November and I was all fitted, went through all the process, they brought all the paperwork out and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to go into debt, I'm gonna have to do something like that to pay for this thing. They handed me the paperwork and said, all you gotta do is sign there. I said, how much do I owe you? They said, nothing, insurance just decided to pay it all. I said, are you serious? They said, yeah, we actually ran the paperwork twice because we thought they made a mistake. And it came back the second time. They're paying 100% of it. They said, so we signed on real fast because now they can't back out of it. It's free. Say, how's that? I have a good God. 
Cherith is a place of provision. But I want you to notice one more thing. And this is, to me, more powerful than the fact that it's a place of provision. Cherith is a place of preparation. That brook dried up. The brook dried up. Look in your Bibles if they're still open. In verse number 9... Verse number 8, the word of the Lord came unto them, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zion, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. So God sends him off. He's going to go north into what is modern-day Lebanon, a village called Zarephath. And God said, I've commanded a widow woman there to take care of you. She's going to feed you. Now, if I was Elijah, in my mind, I'm thinking rich widow. I'm thinking Mrs. Trump or something like that. You know, I'm thinking I'm going to have the wing by the pool, whatever. But that wasn't the case when he got there. There was the widow woman out gathering two sticks to make a fire. You don't build a very big fire from two sticks. She was building a fire to make the last meal for her and her little boy. Elijah, evidently God said, that's the one. And Elijah just walked right up to her and said, can I have a drink of water? And according to the custom of the day, she said, certainly, sir, and got him some. And then she said, hey, can you make me a little little cake? Make me some lunch? She said, oh, sir, she said, I, I, I can't do that. She said, all I have is a handful of flour in my little barrel here, and I've got a little bit of oil in this cruise, and I'm actually going to make a final meal for my my son and I, and Then I'm going to watch my son starve to death and die, and then I'll follow him. Elijah didn't miss a beat. He didn't him and haw. He didn't go off and say, okay, God, what was this all about? He already knew. He said, ma'am, let me just tell you something. You're not going to starve. Your son's not going to starve. I'm not going to starve because until this drought ends, there will always be flour in your barrel. There will always be oil in that cruise. And every day, the three of us are going to eat and we're going to be just fine. God's going to take care of us. Elijah's confidence and faith in that was so strong. The widow woman didn't stand there arguing with him. She just went in and made him some bread. She just obeyed. You see, he had learned to live by faith at Cherith. He had learned that in the extremities, that's where God shines. He learned that God will take care of you. He learned that my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And here he is now going to someone else in her extremity. A woman whose heart was broken thinking, I'm going to watch my little boy starve to death. How horrible is this going to be? And he gets to come to her and say, oh, you're not going to starve. Let me tell you what happened when I was in Cherith. I never went for a meal. God took care of me every morning and every evening. And God did it by miracle. And what God did for me at Cherith, he's going to do for you at Zarephath. Would you understand this? I believe this with all of my heart. That when we go through a trial, God is preparing us to help somebody else going through their own trial. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Blessed be God who comforted us in all our tribulation. And he, he went on to say, so that the comfort we get, we get to use to comfort other people in their tribulation. Cherith is a place of preparation. When we were in Mexico, every other patient there was a cancer patient. They came from around the world. There was patients there from Germany, 
all over Latin America, all over North America, from Canada, from the Philippines, from Australia, from Indonesia. We had all of our meals together, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It was a very beautiful facility. They took very, very good care of us. And so we, we got to know these other people. And mind you now, my wife has, she has uh, terminal brain cancer. She knows she does. But every day my wife would sit at the table and my wife, she could make friends with anybody. I, I can't do that. I don't like people. Um, but my wife loved everybody. She could go to the grocery store and walk out with three new best friends. I, I never understood how she could do it. And, and there she was in this hospital. She's got cancer. She's been through all the treatments and so forth uh, and, and so forth. But she's there ministering to all these other people. There was a gal there. Her name was Allison. She was from the western part of Australia called the Western Authority. Allison was in her 40s. She had never been in a church a single time in her entire life. She'd never been to a wedding in a church or a funeral in a church or a baptism. She'd never stepped into any church whatsoever. It was not part of the culture there. Trina befriended Allison. Allison was there all by herself. She had no companion with her. She wasn't married. So Trina just befriended her and spent time with her. And, and uh, of course, she began talking to her about the things of the Lord. And for Allison, it was a brand new thing. She'd never heard any of this before. About halfway through the second week that we were there, a girl named Renee came from the state of Oregon. Renee was in the final stages of cancer. It had metastasized her entire body. She had every treatment the SACE could offer her. She had every surgery that she could get. She had had her limit on radiation. She had had her limit on chemotherapy. She was wheelchair-bound. She was skeletal thin. She had no hair left at all. She was there by herself. Her and Allison became friends. And every morning, Allison would wheel Renee down to breakfast, and the two of those ladies would sit with us, and I would just sit back and watch my wife doing her thing, loving on them, and so forth. The second Sunday that we were there, Dr. Contreras, who runs the hospital, asked me if I would preach in their Sunday service. So my wife told Allison, and Renee said, you need to come. My favorite preacher is preaching uh, this Sunday. You need to come to the service. And sure enough, that Sunday morning... Allison and Renee were sitting in the row with my wife. And I preached that Sunday morning and did my best to give the gospel. Dr. Contreras asked me if I'd let him do the invitation because there were Spanish people there and he wanted to make sure he translated so they understood everything clearly. So I, I, I said that would be fine and I went and sat beside my wife and I heard him go back through the gospel in both English and Spanish and I never heard the gospel presented any better. I felt like I've never done it before. This guy was amazing. And then he led people in the sinner's prayer. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. And I heard a lady with an Australian accent. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know I can't save myself. And on the other side of her, in a tiny, frail, whispery voice... We heard Renee praying the same prayer. Trina grabbed my hand and squeezed it tight, and she leaned over to me, and she said, that's why I have cancer. Did you hear that? That's why I have cancer. 
we were rejoicing. It was just one of the most incredible things we ever saw. Monday morning, we were down at breakfast, and Allison and Renee were often late, but they were very late. Almost everybody else was done eating. We were still sitting. Everybody sort of, we had our group. We had our little table of friends that we, we hung out with, and the door opened, and Allison came in all by herself. She came over to the table. She didn't get breakfast. She just sat down, and somebody at our table said, Where's Renee? And Allison just started to cry. She said, Renee passed away at 2 o'clock this morning. She got saved Sunday afternoon and went to heaven on Monday morning. Would you understand that when we learn to see through the eyes of faith, we find that God has a bigger picture than anything we can imagine. And my wife and I were heartbroken that that dear lady passed away. But at the exact same moment, we were beyond overjoyed because we knew that Renee did not have cancer anymore. We knew at the 12 o'clock hour she got saved. And when she died at 2 a.m., she became alive in heaven at 2.01. She's walking on streets of gold where she's there forevermore. And I still remember the words of Trina she He leaned over, listening to them pray. This is why I have cancer. I'm an amputee. I live in a world that most of you don't understand. Every day in the United States of America, between five and 600 people become an amputee. It's 18 to 20,000 people every year enter my world. They enter a world of pain and loneliness, the divorce rate of amputees is 60% higher than for anybody else. The suicide rate of amputees is 60% higher. God's opened up some doors to me. I am what's called a certified peer mentor with the Amputee Coalition and with Hanger Prosthetics. I am able to go into any hospital in the state of Connecticut and talk to anybody that's had an amputation or about to have an amputation, and I get to talk to them. I get to walk them through the process. I get to tell them a little bit of my story. And if they ask me what I do for a living, and I say I'm a pastor, the door is wide open now, and I can share my faith with them. And I've been able to lead amputees to Christ. Uh, We've got amputees that are coming to church. Most recently, in our neighborhood, we have a we have a motorcycle gang called the Diablos. They're like Hell's Angels, the New England version. They're notorious uh, for decades. They've somewhat terrorized uh, Meriden, Connecticut. They're they're a bad group of guys. But there is a member of the Diablos that is a double amputee, uh, one below the knee, one above the knee. He got sepsis and lost parts of eight of his ten fingers. His name is Rick. And Rick is now talking to me on a regular basis. I have an open door to a member of the Diablos because I'm an amputee. You see, God didn't put me here because he doesn't like me. He didn't put me here because he's mad at me. He put me here because there's some people that he loves that need Jesus. And he needed somebody in their world that could tell him about that. And my friend, I'm, I don't know what it is that you're going through or that you've gone through or that you will go through. 
But would you trust the hand of God? That God wants to use you in a way that you have never dreamed. And let me tell you this, when it happens, you'll step back and say, it's worth it. Cherith. It's the right place because God put him there. It's a rough place, but it's the most remarkable place that I've ever been. When you're there, don't run. Don't get mad. Don't lose your faith. Look up. The ravens are coming. Can we bow our head and close our eyes? How many tonight could...